Unfortunately, the podcast had to be put on hold for several months because I have been unwell. In fact, um, so unwell that I've had to have a triple bypass operation, which I had uh, towards the end of March. And uh, so I'm just uh, beginning to recover from that. And things, I have to say, are going very well. In waiting for the operation, the operation was delayed several times. um, And uh, it speaks an awful lot about uh, the problems that uh, are being faced by the National Health Service. And I have to start this by saying that I would not be here speaking to you if it were not for the National Health Service. Uh, Because, uh, you know, when eventually I had the operation, uh, it was done to the highest standard of care. uh, And uh, I can not tell you how grateful I am to all those members of staff at the hospital uh, that looked after me uh, both before, during and after my operation. And as I say, without them, I really would not be here talking to you. So what's wrong with the National Health Service? Well, not a lot. Um, There's a lot wrong with its funding. Um, If you hold funding constant for the National Health Service over a period of nearly 10 years, then inevitably uh, it is going to struggle because uh, what it really needs is an increase in funding in real terms of about 4% per year. Uh, Of course, this is necessary. It's necessary to maintain the staffing levels, to maintain the uh, experience and the um, excellence uh, that is required uh, and to recruit the nursing staff needed. You know, Uh, I was looked after in my post-operative care with one-to-one nursing, 24 hours a day. Now, what that means is not just the technology that is necessary uh, in the intensive care unit, um, but that dedicated, experienced staffing. And without that, the operation would not have been able to take place. In fact... Without that, it didn't take place. Several times my operation was cancelled because uh, there was not a bed available in the intensive care unit, uh, in the post-operative unit. And uh, so you see that when we talk about beds, this is what it means. It doesn't simply mean the hardware, the bit of bed, or even the technical equipment surrounding it. What it means is staffing And uh, the National Health Service struggles for staffing. That, incidentally, is going to get worse when we leave the uh, European Union. It's already getting worse because of Brexit, actually. Now, I'm not saying this as another moan about Brexit. You can take it as that if you wish. Um, No, I'm really saying it because this is the truth of the matter. Do you know, my surgeon came from Greece My intensive care nurse that looked after me that period of time post-operatively, one-to-one, sitting with me there, with all that experience and dedication, came from Poland. And uh, many of the other staff came from many other of the countries of the European Union and, of course, elsewhere. Our National Health Service depends upon 
this staffing. If we were to lose that staffing, then the National Health Service, no matter how much money you pumped into it, would find it extremely difficult to recruit sufficient numbers of uh, experienced staff. And so, the, 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 you know, I go back to this problem. Whenever we get to the point where you suck money out of the National Health Service and then it begins to crumble, then we go into the phase called the National Health Service crisis. And for year after year after year after year after year after year, the National Health Service has been in crisis. And it's a crisis of funding. And the government always at this particular time then starts saying the following kind of logic, which everybody kind of agrees with because it sounds so logical and sane. <coughs> what we need, they say, is a consensus about funding the National Health Service. We need a consensus about reform of the National Health Service. Well, of course, we do. But what we crucially need is sufficient funding. And the government say this about reform of the National Health Service uh, now after having reformed it, and after having put in place reforms which the vast bulk of the profession said would be a disaster, said would not would create more problems than it solved. The, the you know the, the Tory government unfortunately always does this. Whenever the Conservative Party come to power, they always start meddling with the National Health Service instead of meeting its needs. They start meddling with it because they, they really are locked into this idea that if only, if only it could be more efficient, yet it's the most efficient in the world. If only it can become more efficient, let's introduce market economics into it so that it will become more efficient. As if somehow or other the marketplace is going to drive efficiency. No, it doesn't necessarily do that. It very often drives cutting corners. It very often drives the bottom line in order to make profit. And that is not what health really is about. And that's one of the reasons why there was a consensus. Oh, yes, when the National Health Service was set up, there was indeed a consensus of sorts for that lasted about 30 years, actually, uh, from the 1940s, 1950s, 1960s, and uh, perhaps through the 1970s, but then in the 1980s, that consensus was abandoned. Who abandoned that consensus? The very party that actually calls for a consensus now, the very party that sort of talks about this logic of if only we could have a reform of the national service that everybody agrees with. Well, you know, and whenever you say, whenever they say this kind of thing, what they're trying to avoid is the bottom line. The bottom line is funding. It's a bottomless pit, you also hear. You also hear it's a bottomless pit. Well, I say, no, it's not bottom. The bottom is that you die. That's the bottom. The bottom end of this is that if we don't fund the National Health Service, then hundreds of thousands of people, hundreds of thousands of people will suffer. And, um, oh, there's another thing about suffering. Oh, the other thing they'd say, the other sort of kind of blame game that there is is this idea that the National Health Service struggles because people are living longer. Now, you know, this is not a problem. It's, a, it's not a problem, people living longer. You say, well, of course, it must be, you say. It must be a problem, surely, because if they get longer, they get more uh, problems of, of, of old age and so on, and they become more ill. And this is a burden on the National Health Service. It's not a burden. This is what I mean, you see. We start talking about problems as if they're burdens. Problems are not burdens. Problems are situations that need solutions. They're not burdens. Older people aren't burdens. Uh, they just simply uh, come with problems 
that uh, are problems more readily identifiable in old age or affect older people, and they need solutions. And those solutions mean that you put funding in. You don't, at the same time, at dealing with that burden of people getting older, cut social care, which is what the government have done. How can you imagine such a stupid thing when they say, oh, people are living longer? And yet, in the face of that so-called burden, in face of people living longer, what do they decide to do? They decide to cut funding to local authorities. So local authorities can no longer afford social care. Isn't that the most ridiculous thing? We've got a housing shortage. The same thing happens there. The most ridiculous thing happens in housing. Uh, I tell you what it is. What it is that people were, people, many people living in, in poorer circumstances were getting social housing or uh, renting in the private sector. Now, the, renting in the private sector, uh, because rents were increasing in some parts of the country way beyond uh, what is possible to, to, to um, afford, I mean, this is ridiculous. How can we have a society in which the rents being charged are not those that can be afforded by the population? It makes no sense. What needs to happen is society needs to be reformed. I mean, you know, there's something completely balmy about the fact that then the state has to step in to top up the rents paid by people, not simply because they're poor, but because they can't afford to pay the astronomically high rents that exist in the private sector. And, of course, the more they support that, the more the rents go up, because there's nothing to stop it. There's no regulation of it. It can't be reined back. But then what do the government do? The government don't sit in, step in and regulate the rents. They don't step in to reform the housing market. What they do then is to cut the amount of subsidy that they give. They cut the amount of allowance that people have to help pay the rents. And so what does that do? It leaves people struggling to pay their rents, and so they then become homeless, uh, and they have to go into other kinds of housing, and it, it adds to the housing crisis. Can you, can you imagine anything quite so absurd? The problem is rising rents. Now, you could say, why are the rents rising? Why are the rents so high? It's high because of the increasing demand. Yes, it is. Of course it is. Um, but it's clear that the market is not meeting those demands. So somehow or other, there needs to be reform. We need to look at, again at the way in which we provide social housing to ensure that uh, indeed people are decently housed. It must surely be the case that if, if society is about anything at all, it must be about ensuring, yes, that we are defended, uh, yes, we are decently housed, Yes, we have decent health care throughout our, our lives. And no, we are not considered a burden because of that. That is what society is about. It's people coming together to provide solutions to those needs. Simply leaving it to some unregulated market will simply mean that some people will benefit and other people will be losers. We then have to cope with the fact that some people are losers. And I tell you, it's extraordinarily costly. So much so that it's the very thing that governments start cutting back when they have to impose austerity. Because the people who lose through austerity are those people who have already lost. Those people at the bottom of the pile, as it were. Because uh, what gets cut is benefits. And then what happens, in order to achieve that, the population uh, are convinced that 
Somehow or other, these people are undeserving. Why can't they pay for these things themselves? Why can't they get better jobs? Why can't they... And even they... Uh, you know, it's, it's almost as if these uh, undeserving poor... They're not undeserving poor. In many cases, they're people who are living, families living on average earnings. Um, they work hard. Many of them have two jobs in order to make ends meet. And uh, these are not scroungers. Uh, these are ordinary working people. And, uh, you know, they, they, they pay into the system. They pay their taxes like anybody else. Uh, and if a society can't address those needs, then we have to ask ourselves, what on earth is society about? What is it for? Well, it's for meeting those social needs, the needs that we all have as a community. It, it benefits all of us if we are all of us healthy. It benefits all of us if all of us have opportunities for education. It benefits all of us because it means that the skill level in the workforce is greater. It means then that the productivity is greater. It means that the economy is more efficient. Uh, it means that the economy grows efficiently. Uh, and with growth comes more wealth. And that is the benefit. That is the benefit of ensuring people have a fair deal. That is the benefit of people, of ensuring people have decent housing, decent jobs, decent um, health standards, decent care, even in older, in, in older age. These are the fundamentals of what a society is about. This isn't sort of some extreme hard left-wing Marxist dogma that I'm talking about here. It's just common sense. It was so much common sense that there was almost a consensus in the 1950s and 1960s that indeed this was what the society was about. What the argument was about in those days was very much more how this was done. But then in the 1980s, it was almost as if this consensus was thrown away uh, and a sort of a devil-take-the-hindmost approach was adopted uh, in society uh, that... Uh, with an overemphasis on the idea that society, if it existed at all, was simply the aggregate of individual activity. No, it isn't. We all behave differently because of our being part of society. We all are influenced by our social being. We are social beings. We don't live on isolated islands. We could do. <laughs> Some people do <laughs> occasionally. But... Generally speaking, what we do is depend on each other. It's an interdependency. That is society. It's an interdependency. Well, wouldn't it be better to look at just exactly how best that interdependency could work? It doesn't work best simply by a devil-take-the-hindmost approach. Winner-takes-all uh, kind of situation. And in fact, we clearly do adopt a winner-takes-all kind of approach, really, because... Uh, Really what gets distributed, redistributed in a, in a fairer sense, is the dregs. When you look at the world and look at society in general, you, you find that the, you know, the huge proportion of the wealth is owned by a very tiny handful, relatively, of people. You know, this is, this is not, a, uh, you know, not a fair society. It's not, well, you know, markets that don't offer fair access, um, your access to the market depends on your wealth. The wealthier you are, the better access you have. Then it's markets. Now, you know, you may say, well, don't criticise that. That's what, how markets work. Yes, they do. 
let's be clear and understand that. Let's not assume that markets are somehow a solution to the problems of poverty. They're not. Let us not assume that markets are miraculous cures for everything. This is what happens, you know, when they, when they nationalise the railways. Yeah, there were problems in the railways, of course, inefficiencies and so on, uh, back in the 1970s and 80s and so on. And in the early 1990s, it was decided at the wisdom of the government that they would privatise it, set it all off. I mean, what utter nonsense that was. There's no way in which trains can compete with each other on the same line. So therefore, when you go along to your station, there's no market. The bloody train is the train. It's run by the same company. It, it doesn't, you know, there's no competition. You can't get on a different kind of train. You can't get on a train run by another company, unless, of course, you try and find some other station running through some other line that has got a different uh, provider on it. You're stuck with that. If you have to have London Midland, you have London Midland. If you, you know, there's no marketplace. It's utterly ridiculous. The same is true with, um, the same is true with water. I mean, how can you, how can you have a marketplace in water? Oh, there is one actually. Is a marketplace in water, but is it actually a real market? Um, you, 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 you sort of. It's the same water. You don't get different water. You don't get more efficient water. Uh, the water's the same, whether you get it from one company or another company. It's the same inadequate, dreadfully out-of-date plumbing. <laughs>